0: Lord, in your mercy, um, we pray that you would use your scriptures, your holy words today to free us from life in the middle, that you would call us today to be men and women who follow you with all our hearts. Grant us grace that we might rise to that beautiful, beautiful call you're giving to us today. Lord, may my words be slaves to yours. May our hearts be open. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, just by way of explanation, um, some of you are detailed people. You notice everything that I do up here. Hence, your ability to mimic me in your homes. I know this goes on. This is my... This is... Sorry, my microphone is on. Really? Anyway, that, I, this is my cell phone, um, I have it up here because not only did I forget to buy a clock uh, to replace that one, I've, I forgot my watch, so now I'm going to use my cell phone as a backup, um, and if, if the next time I speak my cell phone is broken or I forget it, I know God wants me to be totally free up here from time constraint, um, but some of you know my cell phone number and don't even think about it, okay? Okay. It would not be funny, and I do have a way to find out who you are, so if I'm in your speed dial, just behave. Today, it's our privilege to look at the last two chapters in the book of 2 Samuel, chapters 23 and 24, and we are going to drink, I hope, drink together deeply from from the last um, words of King David. They bring up the great themes of David's life and call us to follow his example. And so I hope that you will heed that call today and join me in that. Um, Begins with that expression, these are the last words of David. Last words, whenever I read that phrase or hear that or I'm exposed to that idea, there is a kind of weightiness and almost sacredness to the things that follow that really put Put you on the edge of your seat, and that's the intent, I think, of the writer today, and in, in underscoring these words this way. Earlier this year, as many of you know, um, I had the privilege of traveling uh, to Canada with my wife to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. And when we traveled there together, we flew um, internationally, although it was only to Canada, on the same plane. And so there's always the chance that by some sovereignly scripted pilot error, something could happen to both of us. And so in light of that reality, before I left, I wrote a letter uh, to my children if something were to happen to us, kind of last words that I wrote to my kids. Now, by God's grace, we didn't have to pass that on and those remain um, sealed for another day and that day will come. But my expectation of those words were at a situation where they needed to be read that they would not be read casually or indifferently. That the reaction would, be, would not be, yeah, so what, you know, who cares? But that those words that were scripted on that page as my last words would be read with great care and would be carefully honored. And those are the kinds of words that we are reading today. They are intended to put you on the edge of your seat and say, what is he going to say? How is David's life going to be summarized for us? What are the last great themes that God is bringing to us as this great life comes to a close? And so we read that, This is the oracle of David, the son of Jesse. From humble origins he comes. But it's the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High God, anointed by the God of Jacob to be the king of Israel, king of God's people. And he's Israel's singer of songs. Some of your Bibles say beloved singer of songs. And so it's fitting that he ends his final words as poetry. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, David said. His word was on my tongue. And these are those words. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. David is saying how God spoke to him about his own reign as king, that if he would rule over men in righteousness and rule in the fear of God, he would be a blessing to his people like the sunshine and the rain. But not just David. David, as we'll see in a moment, he's looking beyond his own life at this point. These are his last words. And he's thinking about the kings that will follow him. And we know that the real focus of David's longevity in his reign is not a long life or an eternity long succession of kings, but there will come one king who will reign for eternity. And so he has in view here the Messiah. This is a picture of Jesus who will reign and rule in righteousness and bring blessing like the sun and the rain upon his people. David says, Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant arranged and secured in every part. And David here, in his last words, is remembering God's great promise to him. We find it in 2 Samuel 7. God says to David, Your house and your kingdom, David, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And we know that that's a prediction of the reign of the Messiah, of Jesus the Christ. And so with his last words, David sings this last recurring theme of his life of clinging to the promises of God and pointing other people to the Christ, to the Messiah. That's his legacy. Passionate worship of God pointing other people to Christ. It's not a bad legacy. And as we think about the close of David's life, God is challenging us. What's your legacy? What are you writing as your last words? Because we're all writing them with our lives. And those handwritten letters just underscore them one last time. You know, uh, when I was writing that letter to my kids, I was very, very careful about what I wrote. I went over it and over it and over it. And I wanted to write a great, wise, passionate call to my children to follow Christ. Um, And I didn't want it to be a surprise. I didn't want my kids looking at each other and saying, well, how about that? I didn't know Dad believed that. Did you know Dad believed that? No, I want them to say, that's Dad. Heard that before. Most importantly, seen that before. And so right now, as you live out your life, you are writing that last, these last great words. When you put them on paper, it's just a reiteration of your life. What are you writing? What will be remembered? And what will it mean to follow your example? What promises shape you Every day. How are you pointing people to the great hope that is Jesus the Christ? With your words and with your deeds. Well, it's interesting now, our, our author in Samuel turns his attention from these last words of David... To those who were with David While he built that legacy They're known as his mighty men And all told There are about 35, 40 of these guys They were men of great exploits And I'm not going to read The whole story for you You can do that later And I would encourage you to um, <clears throat> Can you advance that slide for me Mary? It says these are the names Of David's mighty men Josheb Bathshebeth Atacmonite was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodai, the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastanim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword." The Lord brought about a victory that day, and the troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Can you? Thank you. Uh, Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zariah, was chief of the three. Down in verse eighteen, he raised his spear against three hundred men, whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. We go on to verse twenty. Beniah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion, which evidently is a very difficult thing to do. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Beniah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. See, these were men of great exploits, heroic deeds. And they were also men incredibly devoted to their king. There's a story embedded in the midst of all these accounts. It says, uh, During harvest time, three of the thirty chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold and a Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. So David is hiding out in a cave, The Philistines have drawn a battle line between him and the city of Bethlehem. And David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistines' lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. These guys traveled probably about 12 miles, then fought their way through enemy lines just to get their king a drink and bring it back through enemy lines again, back 12 miles, back to David where they gave it to him. Just for the pleasure of their king. I mean, there was safer water closer than that, I'm sure. But David, perhaps in a memory from his childhood, remembered the sweetness of this well that was now prohibited him by the Philistines and as he expressed his longing his men basically just said as you wish and they went all for the pleasure risking their lives for the pleasure of their king and as a result of these two things their their great exploits and their devotion to their king these men were greatly used by God it's alluded to a couple of times in here we saw it already it says the Lord brought about a great victory that day Verse 12, the troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. It was the Lord who brought a great victory through Eliezer's um, heroic deeds on behalf of his king. Next to him was Shema, son of Egi the Herorite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field and he defended it and struck the Philistines down and the Lord brought about a great victory. Again, the Lord brought about a great victory through his devotion to his king and his great exploits, his heroic exploits. He was fighting in that field not for lentils but for his king and he was useful to God, greatly used by God. These men, I believe their stories recorded here in part as a challenge to us, especially to those of us who are men, that we would be numbered when the day comes above the mighty, in the, amongst the mighty men of God in our generation. when they remember back to this day, and they say what God was doing in this day, that we would see our names written as men who gave our best, our greatest exploits for devotion to our king. And I think, especially this is true for men um, in their younger days, that God is using these stories to call you to a legacy of heroic service for your king. Maybe you'll be a warrior Maybe you'll be a teacher, or an engineer, or a pastor, or a missionary, or a salesman. But you'll stand in your field and strike great blows for your king. Matter of fact, what I'd like you to do, if you are 20 years old, if you're a man or a boy here, 20 years old and younger, would you stand right where you are? You could be 7, or you could be 20. I want you to stand right where you are. Here you go. Now, you young men who are standing, this text is for you. This is God's call to you that you would leave a legacy, not of foolishness or laziness, but for your king. That when they write the history of this place, they'll be writing about you as one of God's mighty men who laid down his life in heroic acts, gave his life heroically, whether it's you know, as a teacher or as a warrior, for your king. And I've asked Mark Wiederbach, one of our elders, to come and just pray for you guys. If you'll stay standing, he's going to pray for you, that in fact their legacy would be your legacy.
1: Mark, let's pray. Our God, what an outstanding privilege we have to intercede for these young men, and we we do so with, uh, with the fullness of our being. We thank you for them. We thank you for bringing them to us. And, Lord, as I look at these men and as we pray for them, we ask that you would use them far beyond what they can even begin to imagine about their lives right now. Lord, that you would begin to place within them not only dreams but longings to live for you that transcends their culture, that lives as Elisha did in regard to Elijah with twice the blessing of their parents for the glory of God that they would walk with you in a way that when people look at them and in their schools and then later in their jobs and in their families that these would be people that, that the world looks at them and says these are mighty men of God and Lord may it be but by your grace you would do that in them as well as in their brothers and their fathers we pray in Christ's name
0: Amen Amen You guys can have a seat Thank you Barn. What's interesting about this whole situation, they bring this treasured water that they just risked their lives for to David, and this is what he does with it. It says, The three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he pours it out on the ground before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? Is this not their blood? And David would not drink it. And such were the exploits of the three mighty men. David treasured their sacrifice as an evidence of their devotion was for him too sacred a thing for him to consume. It was too holy for his personal use. It was suitable only as an act of worship to God. And he pours it out. This treasure of his. This is, this is the legacy of David. Costly worship. His most treasured belongings poured out for God. It's David at his best, and oh, that we would worship God like King David. And so, let me encourage you: if you have young men or boys in your home, that Chapter Twenty Three, the legacy of these mighty men, might be something you'd read to them this week and cast a vision for them and how God might be using them. We move on to Chapter Twenty Four we find that the scene has changed yet again, and now the anger of the Lord burned against his people. And he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to their king, he can sense something is not right with this. And he says, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's sword, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men. And we have a momentary all throughout the land. They do this census. It takes them ten months to count all the mighty men, and we find in the next section, um, after they'd gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. And there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. But David was conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly. In what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Now, when you think about what we just read and its connection to the very first verse, this is a bit troubling. Because God incited David to number the fighting men, right? And now David says. That counting of those men was a sinful thing. So it's a little bit troubling. It seems that God has incited David to do something sinful. Now, a little bit of help comes to us in reconciling this. If you look at a parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21, the same description is going on. It says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So it was not merely God, but Satan is involved in the process here somewhere. But really, all that does is back us up one step. Now God is using Satan to incite David to sin, which is still a little bit troubling. What is most helpful, I think, is to realize that God is involved in this process and will ultimately bring good for his people out of it most immediately the corrective discipline of his wayward people that have provoked him to anger. God is using Satan and even David's sin for his good purposes. Satan's evil plans are to be overruled by God's greater sovereign goodness. And this happens on different occasions throughout the Bible where Satan is used as a tool in God's hand. You see it in... The language of... If you can go to that next slide for me, please. Thank you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. To keep me, the apostle Paul says, from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And again, we have a messenger of Satan serving God's purposes of humbling one of His great leaders. So God is at work here to bring good on behalf of His people, even out of evil that's being done against them. Not only good for His people, but also for the good purpose of displaying His glory. Jonathan Edwards long ago wrote this, and Jonathan Edwards writes rather thickly, so listen closely to this. He says, If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin, there could be no manifestations of God's holiness in hatred of sin or in showing any preference in His providence of godliness before sin. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved, How much happiness soever he bestowed, his goodness would not be so much prized and admired. Essentially what he's saying is that evil decreed by God to happen provides a necessary back drop for his glory to be exalted. His goodness and his mercy exalted by contrast and by deliverance from it. For instance, the screen that you see is not blank. You just can't see it because there's no contrast. Now, if I change the white background to black, this is what has been there all along. It says, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? This declaration of God's glory only stands out because of a black background. That's the purpose that sin and evil serve in God's hand. As a necessary backdrop for the exaltation and presentation of His glory, especially His goodness and His holiness. Not that this ever justifies our sin. In fact, you notice, David confesses his deed as sin. He doesn't blame it on God. He doesn't blame it on Satan. He owns it. But it helps us see how God can use it for His glory. But what's most helpful for me when I think about these kind of things difficulties in the Scripture is to recognize that God using evil, even sin, for His good purposes is the pattern of the cross. In Luke chapter 24, the Son of Man, it says, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified and on the third day to be raised again. That it was sinful men doing sinful deeds That brought about the crucifixion of Christ, his death, according to God's predetermined plan. This includes the desertion by the twelve and Peter's denials. They were all used by God to bring about the great good which we know as the cross and the crucifixion of Christ. So I trust, because of the cross, that even in the darkest things that come into our lives, God is at work... in largely secret and mysterious ways that will one day... Somebody could get me a glass of water. Okay, it is the cross that helps us trust God when we see suffering and sin and don't understand. Our God is able to use it for an even greater good that has been unseen by us. So in mysterious and secret ways, God is at work in this story that we are reading and in our lives during these times. <clears throat> All of that said, this is not the point of our story. It takes a different turn and focuses on David's response to what God is doing. It says, David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men. he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out Against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So essentially what's happening here is the prophet comes and says, David, there's a penalty to be paid for your sin. And you've got kind of a let's make a deal kind of option. Door number one, three years of famine. Door number two, three months of running from your enemies. Door number three, three days of plague. And David says, I would rather... Fall under the judgment of God because his mercy is great. And here we see David again. Why he is a man who's a man after God's own heart. It's the way he repents of his sin. Unsolicited, he repents of this. He calls it great sin. He does not blame Satan. He does not blame God. He takes responsibility for it. And he trusts even in judgment and discipline and punishment that God will bring mercy to him. Um, And those things, God's mercy and judgment, intersect right at the point of David's sacrificial intercession on behalf of the people. In verse 15, The Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. Seventy thousand of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. And now the writer gives us a glimpse into how that restraint on God's part happened. It says, The angel of the Lord was at the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I'm the one who sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. And David here makes this great sacrificial offering on behalf of the people. He is willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of another. And again, that sounds like Christ. David is pointing us to Christ who would... Make the great sacrifice for the good of another. In verse um, 18. On that day, Gad went, the prophet went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. So David has instructions from the prophet. He obeys those instructions perfectly, beautifully, promptly. And he goes to buy the land. Arunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant to buy your threshing floor? David answered, So I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. And Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all this to the king. And Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. So Aruna understands what's at stake, and he offers this as a gift to the king so that the plague might be stopped by the sacrifice. It is the cross that helps us trust God. When we see suffering and sin and don't understand, our God is able to use it for an even greater good that has been unseen by us. So in mysterious and secret ways, God is at work in this story that we are reading and in our lives during these times. All of that said, this is not the point of our story. It takes a different turn and focuses on David's response to what God is doing. It says, David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men. He said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So essentially, what's happening here is the prophet comes and says, David, there's a penalty to be paid for your sin. And you've got kind of a let's make a deal kind of option. Door number one, three years of famine. Door number two, three months of running from your enemies. Door number three, three days of plague. And David says, I would rather fall under the judgment of God because his mercy is great. And here we see David again. Why he is a man who's a man after God's own heart, it's the way he repents of his sin unsolicited. He repents of this. He calls it great sin. He does not blame Satan. He does not blame God. He takes responsibility for it. And he trusts even in judgment and discipline and punishment that God will bring mercy to him. And those things, God's mercy and judgment, intersect right at the point of David's sacrificial intercession on behalf of the people. In verse 15, the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. Seventy thousand of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. And now the writer gives us a glimpse into how that restraint on God's part happened. It says, The angel of the Lord was at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. and When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I'm the one who sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. And David here makes this great sacrificial offering on behalf of the people. He is willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of another. And again, that sounds like Christ. David is pointing us to Christ who would make the great sacrifice for the good of another. In verse um, 18, On that day Gad went, the prophet went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. So David has instructions from the prophet. He obeys those instructions perfectly, beautifully, promptly. And he goes to buy the land. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. And Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all this to the king. And Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. So Aruna understands what's at stake, and he offers this as a gift to the king so that the plague might be stopped by the sacrifice. What's fascinating is David's response. In the next verse, <clears throat> the king replied to Aruna No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. David's obedience is full and prompt, he will not cheapen it by offering as an act of worship a sacrifice that costs him nothing. And this is new to us. This is different to us. We tend to think that today, um, it's, if you can get a really good deal on something, maybe get it for free, and it's worth something, and then you re-gift it to someone else, this is a sweet thing. This is a good deal. This is a coup. We've got something for nothing. We gave it as a gift to someone else that pleases them. Does it get any better than that? It's like a twofer. God thinks differently about our worship. And David understands that. He will not take something that costs him nothing and offer it to his God as worship. See, that that defies the very notion of sacrifice. And so uh, we see that in um, Malachi where God says, uh, when you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrificed a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. You know, God has always rejected discount worship. Worship that costs you nothing. Worship that is determined to be easy for you. And so I'm reading this text this week, and I realize I have fallen exactly into the pattern that David refuses to do. Um, we're involved in a thing called Journey of Faith, right? It's the, it's the way that we worship God with our special gifts that are targeted to pay off this building so that our resources can be used in the future more directly in kingdom expansion and strengthening. And years ago, um, many of us made a commitment uh, to give sacrificially and gladly to that as an act of worship. And Steph and I did that. And at the end of the first Three years of the last three years that we we're involved in trying to help pay this building off, we we're just a little bit short, a couple hundred bucks short of what we would committed to give. So we just committed to kind of add to what we were giving in the next season of giving towards paying this building off, and we'd pay it off. And in the process of that, I came across a way, and I won't tell you all the details because it, it, uh, it's just about me and involves someone else. I don't want to impugn them by my foolishness, but... I came up with a way that I could pay off that remaining journey of faith debt and have it cost me nothing. Nothing. I'd get a little extra cash that I wasn't expecting that would come in in a certain way, and I would just give that to the Lord. cost me nothing. Um, And I thought, what a sweet deal. It was kind of like paying my mortgage for free. I'd get the extra cash. I'd pay it off. And so what had started for me as a glad-hearted act of sacrificial worship had become a way for me to pay on a mortgage in a way that cost me nothing. And God is not pleased with that. So I had to go to Steph and say, Steph, I've managed this badly. In trying to protect us, I have defrauded God. And we need to just write the check. It'll be a little painful, a couple hundred bucks we weren't expecting to give. But I much rather give it in a way that honors the Lord and thrills Him than by my schemes that have lowered worship to becoming simply a way to pay off a mortgage or a debt. So, David understands worship. And he goes to his grave in passionate, costly worship of God. It's his last story that's recorded in the book of Samuel. This great act of worship for his God. This is the way his story ends. A costly act of sacrificial obedience and worship for the good of another. For the good of another. And in that way, he points us to Christ. Who by his obedience to his Father brought about God's mercy to us even though we're suffering not for the sins of someone else, but for our own sins. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And so David's legacy is that of passionate worship, costly worship and obedience to God, repentance of his sin, and pointing other people to Christ. And it's fascinating to me that God picked the place where David was to make the sacrifice. It's very interesting. Back in verse 18, the prophet went to David and said to him, Go up, build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. God picked this place. Now, this place we know from the parallel account in Chronicles. It says, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father. It was on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite, the place provided by David. So we know that the place where Aruna's threshing floor was, was, was called Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah occurs earlier in the Bible. Back in Genesis chapter 22, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham replied, Here I am. And God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about. So back in Genesis 22, um, Isaac's life was spared by the provision of God of a sacrifice on his behalf on Mount Moriah. In our story, the lives of God's people were spared on Mount Moriah on the threshing floor when David offered a sacrifice to save the lives of his people. Again, in that verse in Chronicles, it says on that same mount is where Solomon would build the temple where sacrifices would be offered daily for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. And the New Testament tells us in John chapter 19 that Jesus carried his cross he went out to a place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha and there they crucified him. And scholars tell us that that is also in the region of Moriah. Some think it's actually on the same mount where David bought the threshing floor, where Solomon built the temple, and where Isaac's life was spared by the sacrificial lamb. All of this, this costly exercise, is pointing us to Christ. The last act of David's life here, and his story in this verse, has been engineered for us to point us to Christ. That's David's legacy. The last words of his life to worship God passionately by repenting fully of his sin, to worship God passionately by his obedience, clinging to God's promises, and to point others to Christ along the way. So, this morning, I want to invite you to respond to God's invitation to live lives like David. We've been watching David all this time as an example to us of what it means to seek God with all our hearts. And this morning, those themes come up again, to worship him passionately with our last words till the end, dealing radically with our sin and pointing others to Christ by our words and our example. As a worship team comes to lead us, I'd like to invite you, if God is speaking to you or has been speaking to you about David's life and these great themes to come forward and just as an act of consecration and commitment to honor God that you might kneel here at the front and commit this to Him in prayer if you want one of our leaders to pray with you they'll be available along the front here just turn around and give a glance towards one of them or motion to them and they'll come along and pray with you just for a moment but let's stand and I'll pray for us and then we'll declare our commitment to our King let's pray our worship now see our response now as our desire to live lives to the end that honor you, may our last words be like David's, worshiping you passionately, pointing others to Christ. Lord, receive our worship and these responses now for your great namesake.